According to Forbes magazine, it's a U.S. financial news magazine, um, Carlos Halu from Mexico, he's the richest guy in the world. He's worth $53.5 billion. Forbes says that Bill Gates, um, you guys know him of Microsoft fame, he's the second richest man in the world. He's worth $53.0 billion. Warren Buffett is Number three, he's the third richest man. Uh, he's from the U.S. He's made his billions from investing. He's worth $47 billion. According to Forbes magazine, four of the six richest people in America are from my home state. They live in a small community known as Bentonville, a population 30,000. Can anyone guess who that might be? Walmart. Walmart. <laughs> it's uh, the children of Sam Walton. They're worth $20 billion apiece. Um, one thing I noticed that was interesting as I was doing this research the, when I preached this sermon before was that the 10th guy on the list is a relative of mine. Uh, but he never calls, he never writes, um, and he never returns my calls, never returns my letters. Uh, no, his name is, is Karl Albrecht. He's uh, German. He owns Aldi Groceries. And Albrecht was my name when, before my family immigrated in the 18th century to America. So I may try to call him. It's been a while <laughs> since I've tried. Um, I Googled Get Rich the other day, and the result was 50 million hits. And um, I didn't have time to look at all the sites, but the ones I did look at, it was about, I know you can guess, it's about making money. Um, that's really the world's definition of rich. And that's making money and owning things and stuff like that. That's the world's definition. But what I want to start out tonight with, the question I want to ask you is, how do you define rich? Um, do you think Forbes is right? Do you think Google is right? Is being rich about money and wealth and prosperity, property and portfolios? Um, is it about that at all? What does God have to say? Uh, I know you know, but we're going to do a brief review before I get into the text. You guys remember the guy over in Luke chapter 12 who was building barns and hoarding up all kinds of stuff? You remember what God called him, right? Anybody? God says you are fool. This is basically, we could sum up we could sum up all that God has to say about men who spend their lives to gain the world and its, and its riches. We could sum it up with that word. God says it's foolish. Um, he says it in a lot of different ways, but He says it is foolish. You may remember the rich young ruler. He, he wouldn't come to Christ because he loved his money more than he loved God. He wanted God but he wanted his money more. This is epidemic in the Western world and even in the East these days. Remember what the Holy Spirit said in James chapter 5 to the rich who had misused their wealth. God says, You have lived luxuriously upon the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. A clear reference to the day of Judgment. We remember what God tells uh, uh, Timothy 
As Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, just listen to this. I know you've heard this before. I want, you, I want to begin this, this verse with asking you, do you really want to be rich in a material sense? Listen to what God says. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge them into ruin and destruction. Do you want to be rich? For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many a pain. Then the Lord says, But flee from these things, you man of God. Back to the guy in Luke chapter 12. God called him a fool. And he said, So is every man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is every man who has not made it his life objective to be rich in the things of God. To be rich toward God as the Gospel says. Jesus clearly says there in Luke chapter 12, He says, Stop worrying about all this. I'll take care of it. You just go do what I told you to do. Bring honor and glory to my name. Make me famous in the earth. Make disciples. You stop worrying about money. Remember what he said to his guys? He said, man, he says, men of little faith. It's like, grow up. You know, be a man. Be a Christian. Believe me. Jesus says, I know what you need. I know what you need. Stop worrying. You know, it always comes down to faith, doesn't it? <laughs> As Krista said, we always come back to faith with God. Um, that's where He always brings us. Jesus said, true riches, real wealth, are not in accumulating and hoarding things. Actually, Jesus says, and I'm going to read the text to you, Jesus says, true riches and real wealth are gained by giving it away. Luke chapter 12, 33, 34. Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give, and make for yourselves purses which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. Man, I took my best pair of pants to Kiev. Okay, I just can't I can't read this and not tell you. I love these pants. Man, they fit right and they you know everything. You know what I'm talking about. When you Oh Yaman knows. Oh Yaman knows. He's kind of a fashion guy. <laughs> and uh, and Karen, Karen was going to press them for me. They were all wrinkled from the. And there's a, a moth had eaten a hole in my pants. And you know what? I, th I thought of this verse. I thought, Lord, those are my favorite pants. <laughs> he goes, Don't set your hope on your favorite pants, Jim. I mean, the moth will destroy them. Yes, they will. For where your treasure is. There will your heart be also. Jim, get your heart off your pants. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says, real wealth is unfailing treasure. It's heavenly wealth. It's heavenly wealth. Again, from 1 Timothy chapter 6, 18 and 19, the Holy Spirit says, be rich in good works. Are you rich? In a way that matters? Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. Storing up the treasure of a good foundation for the future 
so that we may take hold of that which is life indeed. Forbes and Google could not be more wrong about real wealth, true riches. And tonight, this is one thing Paul is saying to us. If you're a believer tonight, if you're a born-again Christian, Paul says, man, Carlos Halu is a pauper compared to you. You are a son or a daughter of the king of the cosmos. Bill Gates, 53 billion, it's chump change. I don't know if that translates. That means, that's an American slang. That means, that's not much compared to you. Compared to what you have in Christ. Your inheritance in Christ. Beloved, are you living like you are a son or a daughter of the king? Paul did. <laughs> That's the reason I went to this text. Paul did. I love this text. I've only preached it one other time. And it never left my mind. You know, he lived. He lived understanding what true wealth is. And he invested it. That he might have treasures in heaven. He mended tents in his spare time. The world would have said, this guy's a vagabond. This guy is a pauper, which means P-A-U-P-E-R. One time I preached this sermon once before and a guy came up and he says, what does pauper mean? I used it all through the sermon. It just means a poor person, right? Destitute. A vagabond. He has nothing. To the world, Paul was, Paul was a vagabond. He mended tents in his spare time, but Paul was always talking about how rich he was. Read his letters. <laughs> he was always talking about how rich he was. Just a few examples of the things Paul said about himself and about every born-again lover of Christ. He says, the true believer, we possess the riches of God's kindness. Romans chapter 2. We possess the riches of God's glory. Romans chapter 9. We possess the riches of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 1. We possess the, the surpassing riches of God's grace and kindness, Ephesians chapter 2. We possess the unfathomable riches of Christ, um, Ephesians chapter 3. And tonight we're going to see, you heard the text read, verse 27, Paul says, he mentions the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of Glory. Paul said it perfectly in 2 Corinthians 6.10 when he described himself as having nothing yet possessing all things. This is who we are, beloved. <laughs> we don't have to have all the props and all the toys. and all. We don't have to have that. We have God. God is our reward. He satisfies our soul. We don't have to play the, the world's game, which is a loser's game. Why? It all goes, it's just like Monopoly. What happens at, at the end of the Monopoly game? What happens? It all goes back in the box. You don't get to keep any of it. You don't get to keep anything. You come in naked, you leave naked. It's a fool's game. It's a loser's game. Jesus says, my people are rich toward God. That's what Beloved, that's what matters for us as Christians. 
Carlos Halu, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. I don't know if any of them are Christians or not, okay? So don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, uh, I'm not making a judgment call on that. I'm just trying to compare what the world says is valuable as, as compared to what um, God says is valuable. But these guys are paupers compared to every true believer sitting in this room. They may have billions, but they are, they are paupers compared to you and to me. For we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Verse 27. Colossians 1, verse 27. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's rich. Do you know why the Holy Spirit... Let me just bring you up to speed. Why the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to write the letter uh, of Colossians? It's because the, the pure gospel of uh, salvation was under attack by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It was under attack. Uh, false teachers were coming in and adding to Christ. Anytime someone says you, you need Jesus plus religion, you know it is a false gospel. And this is what Paul is fighting uh, in this letter to uh, Colossae. False teachers were saying you need works, you need legalism, you need mysticism, you need X, you need Y, you need Z. You need something more than Jesus has to offer. Beloved, that's always false, it's always wrong, it's always demonic. It's apostasy, it's heresy, it's blasphemy to say you have to add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ. I don't care if you call it Eastern Orthodoxy or Catholicism or Protestantism. If they tell you you have to add something to the finished work of Jesus, it is a lie. And this is what Paul is fighting as he writes this letter known as Colossians. I can always, when I read Colossians, I can hear Paul shouting between the lines, don't you add anything to Jesus. Don't you add anything to my Savior. Don't you dare add anything to Christ. And beloved, this is how you need to weigh out Christianity. When you go, if you go to a church and they're, at, they're piling on a bunch of garbage you have to do, you need to run because that is a false gospel. That is a false gospel. And this is the fight that Paul is involved in as we look at these texts. Look at verse 25. Paul says, I was made a minister according to the stewardship of God. Why is Paul a minister? He told us in Colossians 1.1, he's a minister by the will of God. Right? That's why he is a minister. God invaded Paul's life on the road to Damascus and his life was turned upside down. In fact, his life would never be the same. It was radically different. God, Paul, uh, God called Paul to follow him and obey him and glorify him. He gifted Paul and enabled him to, to do all that God had called him to do. And I, I still remember when I wrote these words, the first time I preached this text, I realized that that's what God's done in your life too. Right? Right? And in my life, if we know Him. God's invaded your life. He's turned it upside down. <laughs> You'll never be the same. Your life is radically different. He's called you to follow Him and obey Him and glorify Him. He's given you gifts to use in the body. You and I are just like Paul. 
And he talks about a ministry according to the stewardship of God. Beloved, you have a stewardship in the church. You have a stewardship in the church. Even as Paul had a stewardship, he talks about his was to plant churches and preach the Word. That was his stewardship. That was, and God gifted him to do that. So if you're a Christian tonight, you're supposed to be a minister in the body of Christ. We don't date the church. We commit to the church. This is what true Christians do. I know there's a lot of dating going on in the modern Western church. and don't know about the Eastern church. You know, people just kind of hang around. They don't, they don't commit. They don't invest. They don't love. They don't serve. They're, it's kind of a spectator thing. You know what I mean? I mean, this is kind of what we see in many, many places. But this is not biblical Christianity. 1 Corinthians 12, God tells us that we're part of a body and we're supposed to have a function in that body. We are specifically designed or gifted to do that function. And if we're not in the body doing that function, then the body doesn't work right. It's that great text over in 1 Corinthians 12. Back in 2009... I did a short sermon series on loving and serving the body. We, we used Romans 12 as our, as our text, and we considered a powerful analogy between the human body and the body of Christ. In the human body, when a cell goes rogue, when it won't do what it was designed to do, when it won't do what the mind tells it to do, what do we call that cell? Anybody know? It's cancer. It's a cancerous cell. When the cell won't do what it was designed to do, when the cell won't obey the brain, medicine calls that cell cancer. The same thing's true in the body of Christ. A disobedient member of the body of Christ, it brings malfunction. It brings disorder. And in one sense, metaphorically, it's a disease in the body. It's a powerful metaphor. Remember what the Holy Spirit said about the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 18. God, listen to this. Listen, you're not at ICM by accident. You're not here by accident. God brought you here because He wants you in this body to do something. You're supposed to be in this body to do something. You know what, you know what God says. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as He desired. He desires for you to be here. He desires for you to love and serve here. That's why you're here. <laughs> that's, why you, that's why you're here. Yes, you're here to be fed. I understand that. Of course, you're here to be fed. You're here to grow. You're here to mature. You're here to be challenged. But you're also here to love and serve this body. God's brought you here to do that, beloved. Verse 25, as I mentioned earlier, Paul's function the preaching of the Word of God. Why does he do it? 
Why does he do it? It's there in the text. For the benefit, he says, for your benefit, meaning the benefit of the church, he preaches. For the benefit of the church, he preaches. You know, we have some of you who come and clean the building. And you clean the toilet. Who wants to clean the toilet? Nobody wants to do that. Who wants to do that? But the guys that come and do that, they do it for your benefit. Right? They worship God. <laughs> Cleaning the toilet for your benefit. It's the same as what I do. I preach. That's what I do. Lord willing, it's for your benefit. So Paul says it's for the benefit of the body. Listen, you're no different than the Apostle Paul in this regard. So let me ask you, are you serving the body with your gift? Are you loving the body with your gift? You know, sometimes people say, well, Jim, I don't know what my gift is. Well, I know how to find out. Do you want to know? Roll up your sleeves and go to work. And you will find out what your gift is. You know how I found out I was called to preach? The first time I preached. A guy was out. They needed somebody. I said, okay, it's going to be bad. I don't know anything about it, but I'll do it. And while I was preaching that night, never forget it, I was preaching that night, and God's talking to me in the back of my head. He's saying, this is who you are. This is why I made you. You're supposed to preach my gospel. So, if you don't know what your gift is, just roll up your sleeves and go to work. You'll run into it. You understand? You'll run into your gift. I mean, you'll run into the ministry that God has for you as you roll up your sleeves and go to work. So let me define the... Paul uses this word um, stewardship here. Let me define that for you. I'm sure you know what it means. A person who manages another's property, finances, or affairs. God gives us physical and spiritual life, gifts, talents, money, wealth, mental and physical capacities, etc., etc. And we hold these as stewards. We're supposed to use these. Someone tell me, why, why are we, how are we supposed to use these? To make a lot of money and be comfortable and be secure and have fun. That's why God gave us all this stuff, right? Not exactly. Not exactly. He gives us this stuff to be about His business. In fact, if you go read the, the parable of the minas, Luke 19, the, the, the parable there, it says that the, the landowner or the property owner, he left and he told his, his uh, stewards to do business with his assets while he was gone. This is the picture of God. You're left here to do business with God's assets, the things that God has endowed you with, the gifts God has given you. You're here to do spiritual business. That's what you're here to do, beloved. In one sense, every breath is a stewardship. So Paul is saying this gift of preaching is a stewardship he has from God. Woe is Paul if he doesn't preach. It's a stewardship he has before God, you know, the, I've mentioned the parable of the men is Luke 19, the talents, Matthew 25. God gives these talents and He expects you and I to employ these talents in the body of Christ. 
Paul was dead earnest about his stewardship before God. Let me ask you, are you earnest about your stewardship before God? This was all, this was all Paul was about. <laughs> was what God called him to do. Did he ate this? He, he lived this? He walked this? He breathed this? He was about planting churches. He was about sharing uh, the gospel. He was, as I like to say, he was his whole life. You could tell, you know, he was pointing at the bema seat. Let me ask you: Are you pointing at the bema seat? You know, the bema seat where we stand before Christ and give an account of the things we've done in the body. It's not about sin and judgment. It's about reward. Are you pointing at the bema seat? You remember what Jesus says, or the the, the property owner says in the parable of the of the talents to the, the guy who doubled his talents. Anybody remember what he said? Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Man, you ought to have that. You ought to just paint it on your ceiling, right? Every morning, first thing you see, that's the way I want to live. Well done, good and faithful servant. Everything else comes next, right? Really. This is how it was for Paul. Everything else was, was like way down the list um, compared to standing before his awesome God and giving an account of his stewardship. Don't have time to develop that further. Let's, go, let's move on. So this mystery that Paul talks about in verse 26, this mystery, and let me just interject. Don't you love the mystery of God? The biblical God? He's beyond explanation, right? You can't explain him. And don't ever try to explain him fully. I mean, you can explain what God's told us here, what's clear. We, we can, we can, what we know, but you know, I, I, I know people are well-meaning and they try to explain the Trinity to people and I cringe when people try to explain the Trinity to people. You can't explain the Trinity to people. You can't understand the Trinity. You're not supposed to understand the Trinity. You're supposed to worship the Trinity. Listen, beloved, it's not about understanding, ultimately. It's about worship about worship and we got too many people trying to understand and using horrible apologetics you know apologetics can be good sometimes but by and large apologetics for the most part bring God down don't explain Jehovah you can't worship Jehovah I love this I, I think I there are a lot of things I love about God but but one of the top three things is his mystery I love that he's mysterious Love that he's mysterious. But Paul here is talking about, uh, close parentheses, Paul here is talking about uh, something that has, it's not a, a mystery in the sense that it's unknowable. It's a mystery in the sense that it's been hidden. This, this was hidden in the Old Testament. It was not revealed, but now it is being revealed. The church, for instance, is an example. The church was not revealed in the Old Testament. This indwelling of the Holy Spirit was not revealed. This is what Paul is talking about. This is why we're so rich. Christ is in us. God is in us. You are not a pauper. You say, Jim, I'm afraid I'm going to bounce a check this week. It's not about that. You need to be more disciplined in your finances. But it's not about that. We are infinitely wealthy in Christ. Infinitely wealthy. Eternally wealthy. Christ in us. God in us. You know, this is... I, 
I'm always astonished that people, they call themselves Christians and they live it this big. I just don't get it. Well, I do. I guess some people, they call themselves Christians, but they haven't really met Him yet. They wouldn't live it like that. They'd at least live it like this. Right? I don't know. God is in us. And Paul says, God has willed to make this mystery known to His saints. Let me just interject. The saints are not some super-duper elite Christian group. If you're a Christian, you're a saint, right? That's not what it is. It's, it's not that. It's, if you're a Christian, this is how the Bible speaks. If you're a born-again believer, lover, follower of Jesus, you are a saint. Verse 27, Christ is in you. The hope of glory. This is where Forbes and Google are clueless about true wealth. Carlos Halu is worth $53 billion, but who cares? Maybe he's a Christian, maybe he's not. I'm not commenting on that. But who cares ultimately? If you land in hell, who cares? Right? Who cares? I don't care, personally, about that. Again, that's a fool's game to chase after the riches of the world. Again, as I can always, again, as I read Colossians, I, I read between the lines here. Paul says, You've got to be kidding me! You're interested in worldly wealth? You must be joking. Right? You must be joking. Christ is in you! God is in you! You are his son, you are his daughter. Are you kidding me? You're living for mammon? You're kidding me, right? I mean, I, I, I can. I would have liked to have been around Paul at least for a day, and just watch him hammer somebody, man. You know, you know, not, not. I don't. I mean, you know what I'm saying. But you know, these guys with these glib answers and and stuff. You know, I just don't think Paul would have put up with much of it. Um. John fourteen seventeen. Jesus says. The Spirit of truth abides with you and will be in you. Three times the New Testament calls the believer the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says it like this, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is, yes, in you, whom you have from God? Beloved, this is a stunning biblical reality. God freely gives what no man in his right mind would ask for. Oh, God, would you indwell me? Would you ask God that? Any right? I mean, would you say, God, I want to be indwelt by the third member of the Trinity? Would any man ask that? No. God freely gives it. That we might live like a son and a daughter of God. I'm going to, have to do some editing here. I'm getting too long winded. Carlos Halu is worth $53.5 billion. It can't be compared to what every true believer sitting in this room possesses. It cannot be compared. God is our Father. He's our Savior. He's our, um, he's our Spirit who indwells us. He is our inheritance. He is our reward. It's an awesome thing. Verses 28-29. Paul says, I won't read it again, but Paul says, man, i got the best job in the world. I proclaim Christ. I get to talk about Christ. 
I get to tell people about Christ. That's your job too. Right? He's not just talking about preachers. He's talking about Christians who spend their life sharing the Gospel in the way they live, the way they speak, the way they work, the way they study, the way they interact at the university, in the office. We're always sharing the truth one way or the other. What does it mean here, this word admonish? Verse 28, Paul says, I admonish men. Literally, it means to warn or to caution. Listen, you know, when I first became a Christian, they used to have this way to evangelize, and I was trained to evangelize like this. Oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You can't find that in the Bible. Jesus doesn't talk like this. The apostles don't talk like this. They warn people about judgment and the cost of rebellion against God. This is how the Bible speaks. It's a little disingenuous to say to a lost person, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Beloved, this is simply not the way the Bible speaks. The Bible does not speak like this. This is some marketing spin. It's not how the Bible speaks. Jesus warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them. And the Apostle Paul does the same as do the others. Let's be biblical when we share the gospel. He says, Paul says, I admonish. Basically, I warn every man and then I teach every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Jesus says, go, make disciples, and what? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. This is our job. Paul counsels Timothy uh, uh, to apply this to every believer. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. This is your job, beloved. Also, 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is within you. You know, every day you're to be spring-loaded, ready to make a defense uh, and give an account of the hope that's within you. Every day you go out in the world. So why does Paul warn those around him and teach those around him that he might help the brethren be, as he says here, complete in Christ? So how does Christian maturity come? How does it come? It comes from hearing the Word of God, believing the Word of God, and doing the Word of God. You will never mature as a Christian if you don't actually do the Word of God. We know what Brother James says in his epistle. Those who hear only and do not act, he says they are deluded. So maturity comes from hearing, believing, and because we truly believe, we do. In verse 29, Paul says, This is the labor of my life to bring men to Christ and to help them mature. Paul says, I strive or work hard at this according to God's power within me. Paul was serious about the Bema seat. <laughs> he was serious about his stewardship. And you could see it in his life. Let me just ask you, 
Is it visible in your life that you are serious about the account you will give to the Lord? Are you serious about your stewardship, beloved? So this raises some questions. Let me just go through them and I'll be done. Are you a good steward of all that God has given you? Are you doing spiritual business with all the Lord has given you? Are you employing your gifts and talents and skills in the church? Whether this church or the next church as you move on. Are you investing your time and your money in the kingdom of God? Are you fulfilling your ministry in the church for the benefit of those around you? Your brethren who are around you? Are you loving and serving this body by fulfilling your function in this body? Are you incarnating this hope of glory, verse 27, in a conspicuous way? Are your family, colleagues, friends, and neighbors seeing Christ in your life? Are you warning and teaching those in your orbit about the realities of God? Are you loving people enough to warn them and to give them the truth and not some caricature of the truth? Are you a student of the Word of God? Are you learning to rightly divide it so that you can teach accurately? Are you ready to give an account to any who ask about the hope that is within you? Are you laboring, striving, and toiling to fulfill the calling God has given you? Beloved, this is biblical Christianity. <laughs> and I just love this text. I love it. It's, it's, not a, it's not a text that contains a lot of fireworks, but I love it. It's the essence of what it means to, to be God's people. We are stewards, and we have a job to do. We have a job to do. Carlos Halu, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, they are paupers compared to the Apostle Paul, the old tent mender. Paul got the whole being rich toward God thing and he would not let go of it. <laughs> he understood about unfailing treasure in heaven and that was his goal. And he would not be dissuaded. He would not be distracted. Treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. He would not let the world distract him. He understood about his stewardship and he took it seriously. He believed and acted upon the promises of God. He built his life around the reality of the beam of seat. His one overarching concern in life was not to please men or even himself, but to please Christ Jesus. Well done! Well done. That's how Paul lived his life. He wanted to hear the well done. I want to hear it too. I know you do too. Be a steward, beloved. Be a good steward. Take your stewardship seriously. You are not here by accident. <laughs> you are here because this body needs you to be here. We're going to celebrate the table tonight. Um, all who have made a profession of faith in Christ and followed Him in believers' baptism. You are welcome to come and celebrate the table with us. We have open communion here in that, re in that regard. Uh, the way we do this is that someone will play a song three or four or five minutes. While the song is ongoing, prepare your, your hearts and your minds. Confess your sin and uh, come and celebrate this great Gospel that 
we've been thinking so deeply about the last few weeks as we saw Jesus uh, crucified and, and raised from the dead. What a great, I mean, what a great gospel, amen? And Jesus says, remember me. Remember what I did. Don't forget. And He left us this ordinance that we might remember in a symbolic way to partake of the flesh and the blood. As He says in John 6, to eat it, to appropriate it, to take it within us, to be His people. So, prepare your hearts. Prepare your minds. Let's celebrate what a beautiful thing this God has done. Come during the song. Get the bread. Get the cup. Go back to your seat. After the song is finished, I'll stand and I'll read a text and then we will partake of the elements. Let's celebrate Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm.